Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Okay. Um, how are you? I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to elders past and present and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are here. Can I um, uh, add to that by thanking you all for coming out on a cold Sydney Saturday night? Um, up here, people with restricted vision and things. And um, as long as you can see Brian, that's an important thing. I, I realise there's 2,000 Brian Brown fans here and I'm honoured to be in your presence. <laughs> and, uh, I also want to thank Brian Brown for leaving the house. <laughs> he could be at home watching St George. The dragons on... Um, you know, are they playing tonight, Brian? I don't want to talk about the dragons. <laughs> now, why is that? I just don't want to talk about the dragons. Fair enough. We'll, we'll leave that subject. We're going to talk about you. Oh. You know, Sam Neill, to all you, you know him, Sam Neill. To his family, it's Nigel Neill. And then he's Sir, he's Sir Nigel to uh, King Charles. <laughs> but um, Sam Nigel to Nigel has got a memoir here called, Did I Ever Tell You This? So about three months ago, I get a phone call from Sam. He says, look, you know, with the memoir, uh, I'm doing the Sydney Writers' Festival at the Town Hall, and my publishers uh, think it'd be a good idea if you interviewed me. And I thought, uh, yeah, all right, if your publishers think I should interview you. I mean, now who the hell's going to want to read your book anyway? <laughs> And, um, you know, I suppose I should help the bugger out. <laughs> so I thought, there's no way he'll get an audience. <laughs> and I'm right, there's a couple of seats empty up there. <laughs> anyway, after having said yes, then the text started. You know, um, mate, I think it'd be a good idea if you asked me this question. And then, or that question, or that question. So I text him back saying, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Which, of course, I don't, because I'm usually used to being interviewed. I haven't got a clue what to do tonight. <laughs> and then it didn't stop there. Then he, he did the Melbourne uh, Writers' Festival and was interviewed by Jane Kennedy. So I get a text saying, God, Jane is so good at interviewing. <laughs> And it didn't end there. <laughs> he then sends to, says to me a couple of days ago, sends me a text going, you know, Jane um, projected photos of me on a screen behind me five or six times during the interview. <laughs> I said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but I might put five or six of mine up there. <laughs> anyway... I did decide that, you know, of course he's terrified, by the way. He's completely terrified. Not sure where I'm going to go here. <laughs> so, Sam Nigel Nigel, a memoir. Why and why now? Yes, well, it's... Um, uh, we did subtitle it something like Life the movies, and other disasters. <clears throat> and um, I didn't really mean to write a book. Never had an intention of writing a book, but um, it's just over a year ago I got diagnosed with something called... Um, I always forget it, because <laughs> it's quite serious. I should, I should remember, my, my doctor is here, Dr. Orly Lavie, who saved my life. And, God bless you, probably wherever you are. But anyway, it's called something like am amniogymnastic immunoblast lymphoma. Sounds serious. 
it's actually very serious. And, and I was at stage three, and um, it meant going under a heavy regime of chemotherapy and also being confined to quarters. And I'm used to going out and, and going to work, and I'm used to the sort of mental stimulation of um, working with other actors, a company accepted, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, doing things with my brain. And I had sort of nothing to do. So I sat down and I thought I'd write some stories for my children, because the truth was I didn't really know how, how long I had to live, so I thought I'd write some stuff down. And um, the book, it sort of became a book because I realized I was writing what amounted to quite a number of pages. And I rang David Maher, this is a literary event, I thought I'd drop his name. <laughs> and and um, uh, I said, look, I, I, I've, I've written so many words. He said, my, my dear boy, I think you've got a book on you. And, um, and then another 50,000 words later on, I sent it to Michael Williams, who, who is, is a friend, friend of a friend, and he edits the Saturday paper. And he said, you really do have a book? and I'm going to send it to three publishers, and we'll see what sort of response you get. I, I would, then, then I was really nervous. I didn't think anyone would be interested, A, and B, I didn't know whether it was any good, particularly as I'd written it sort of running against the clock. Uh, I actually quite like that in hindsight because it gives the book a sort of bit of an urgency uh, and spontaneity. But um, anyway, these Publishers came back and they were very enthusiastic and, and I, eventually I went with Text Press. I thought they sort of got it in a, in a way. That, um, and um, so that's why I wrote the book. It, it's, it's, a, it's an accidental memoir, I suppose you'd call it. Now, did it change you, knowing you had cancer? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I, I think, of course, Yes, of course it does, and, and, um, and profoundly. And that's part of the process of writing a memoir, is that I had, had I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an introspective person. I don't look back with, with any great eagerness, but I was forced to look back and take evaluation of my life, and I realized how fortunate I was. I was so fortunate to have the parents that I did and the upbringing I, I had, of course, you know, the, there'd been bumps on the road and a whole bunch of happy, happy accidents have happened during my life. One of those accidents was coming to Australia, which I never meant to do. And, and uh, you know, I thought Australia was just dry and boring and, <laughs> and, and, and I wouldn't like anyone here. But that was so utterly frigging wrong. <laughs> Here's my closest friend, for instance. You know, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, so much gratitude for the things that have happened to me, and I think the, the general tone of the book is is one of a surprise and b gratitude for stuff that's happened. It wasn't the first time you'd had cancer. It wasn't the first time, yeah. I'd had cancer in 2017. That was much more straightforward and, and it, it needed an operation. And um, uh, apart from, um, you know, getting off the, what, what's the green stick that you suck in? All oh, that good stuff. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> apart from the difficulty of getting Is it morphine? Over, morphine, yes. Yeah. I really liked the morphine. <laughs> it was interesting. I was with Sam, we're out at Rose Hill, came out with me to Rose Hill Racecourse because a mate of mine rehabilitates racehorses there and uh, he'd found a horse for me and I said to Sam, come on out and have a look at this horse. So we go out to Rose Hill and um, I'm in the ring riding the horse around the ring and I look across and um, there's Sam, he's on his phone and I'm thinking, mate, I've asked you to come out here to have a look at this horse and whatever and all you can do is get on the phone. Anyway, I thought, I'm not going to ask him again to come to anywhere. <laughs> so then we get in the car and we're driving home and about 
about five minutes into the drive, he turns to me and he said, I've got cancer. And that was that day. I won't forget that day. And uh, that was a pretty heavy shock that went through you and you survived that and you've survived this one. Yeah, so far so good. Um, yeah, the, the first one, I had an operation and that was straightforward, bish bosh, all, all fixed. This one, I have to have um, this chemo for the rest of my life. So, um, you know, I don't think you, you've, you recover from cancer. Of course you don't, you're in remission. But I'm very grateful. I've been in remission for nine or 10 months now. And, um, uh, and every, day's, <laughs> a good day. every day's a good one. Okay, let's go, let's go back now to the 14th of September, 1947. Yes, I don't actually remember the day itself, but that's the day, <laughs> that's the day I was born. The 14th of September, 1947, was the day you were born. Nigel John Dermot Neal. How do you say Omug? What's the, the town? You got it right. Omug. Hmm. County Tyrone, on a North, 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 North uh, Island. Hmm. North Island. What do you remember about that day? <laughs> yes, right, I the, my memory is very sketchy, but my, my, my mum remembered it very well. I was actually born on the kitchen table. I was never explained why she wasn't in bed, but it was on the kitchen table, and I've been back to that very room, and I've seen the scene of the crime. And um, it, was, it, was remar it was a remarkable day because it was a you know, um, a midwife there giving, delivering me. And at the same time as I was coming out, the kitchen door opened and three pigs came running, running, right, <laughs> running around. So, so the midwife was torn between getting the pigs out and getting me out. And it was a bit of a toss up there for a while. But I think as a result, I've, I've always been fond of pigs. I was born in the year of the pig. And, and three pigs came to greet, greet my, you know, arrival in the world. <laughs> I love pigs, and, um, and um, apart from Brian, my other closest friend is a pig. <laughs> Who, who's even uglier than Brian? <laughs> now, um, what, you, you didn't leave, you, you, you were there until about 1954. Mm. So what are your, your any, what particular memories as a child, do you grab in those years? Was it, were you running outside? Was it inside? What was your life as a young man, young boy? Look, I think, again, I was extremely fortunate. My parents had a, a little old whitewashed cottage right on the rocks in, in County Down. And, um, you know, at high tide, the water would come right up to the house. And, you know, we would pretty feral kids, and uh, we had the beach to ourselves. It's, you know, it's, it's an island, so the weather's never going to be terribly clement, but we, we didn't care about that. Uh, my earliest memory is actually having um, whooping cough, and um, I remember being very, very frightened. Of course, no kids have whooping cough now. We haven't we have inoculations, you know, and, but it's actually quite a serious thing to have. We had, in those days, we had measles and all sorts of things. And I try to explain, one of my kids is vaguely anti-vaxxer, and I say, the reason you don't have polio, and the reason you don't stutter like I did after the whooping cough is because you got vaccinated. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah that, that, did, that did give me a stutter that my mother was playing. So up until the age of about 15, or 14 or 15, I could barely talk to an adult. And, and I could, you know, just about talk to my friends. Because I had this really bad stutter. It was starting to fade away during adolescence. In 54, you went to Christchurch to live, the family. Dad was in the army. Yeah. In Northern Ireland. Yeah. But in going to Christchurch, what happened there about being a... Was he still in the army or what? Um, he retired, but he spent, he spent a year with the New Zealand army on the way through. And he went back into the, into the family business, which was wine and spirits principally. Right. Yeah. Now, you, 
you had a brother and a sister? Older brother, younger sister. So were you a close family? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I, um, my brother's five years older than me. He's considerably brainier than me. He's very... Not hard. No, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a widely recognised Shakespeare scholar and a, you know, he's got a PhD and all those sort of things that I don't have. And so I've always rather lived under his shadow. Um, and for the first 30 years of my life, people would say to me, are you Michael Neal's brother? Yeah. <laughs> and then there was, there was a day, I wish I was there, when someone asked him, are you Sam Neal's brother? <laughs> 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 um, you talk about going camping and stuff like that. Was that the whole family would go camping? Yeah, we'd. we'd um, <laughs> my father's an extremely impractical man, you know, and things would go terribly wrong on camping trips. He was really good at picking spots to camp where, you know, there'd be rain overnight and all the tents would get flooded away <laughs> and stuff like that. But I was brought up to love fishing and skiing and being up in the mountains and, and that's where I live now, up in the mountains in central Otago um, because, you know, we lived in Dunedin which is a pretty dull town to be honest but um, <laughs> um, to go on holiday up into the lakes and the mountains of New Zealand doing one thing or another was my idea of paradise and, and, and still is. You're right, um, you're right in the book um about your family, but uh, there's a, a section there you write uh, that when your father's um, uh, on his way out, there's a very touching piece that you write that I'd like you to read, if you would. Yeah. Doing that last. Oh, down here, okay. Yeah, it's, well, you know, we were a close family. Um, we weren't a sort of cuddly family. Mum and Dad loved horses and dogs and so on. And they loved their children, but we never cuddled or anything like that. You know, and, <laughs> you know when, when it was time to say goodnight to Dad, um, he'd say, right, bedtime. And, and, and I'd go over and we'd shake hands. Goodnight, old chap. <laughs> And when I was off to school, um, you know, he, would, he was assiduous about coming down to the railway station. because so I started boarding school at nine, and um, he'd come down and say goodbye at the, at the railway station, and, and I'd say, goodbye, Dad. And he'd go, goodbye, old chap, and, <laughs> and get on the train. And then I'd try not to, you know, sh show myself crying on, as I left. Uh, they loved cuddling their dogs and things, but, you know, <laughs> we never got any of that sort of love. But there's no question, you know, they, they, they did, you know, adore us. It was puzzling, must have been puzzling to them because they were sort of such horsey people that they produced a Shakespeare scholar, an actor of sorts. And my sister is a, is a <laughs> she's a puppeteer and a drama teacher. So, you know, they, you know she, they bred these aliens, basically. <laughs> But mum and dad, um, I never saw them, um, you know, I might have seen them a little peck on the cheek once or something like that. And I remember when my grandmother died, my, grandma, my other grandmother, we went to meet mum coming off the plane and dad was there too in, in his car. My, um, I drove off with, with gran and I looked back and to my complete surprise, there's my mother sitting beside Dad. You know, there was bench seats and cars in those days. And there she is cuddled up against Dad. I was, I, was so, I was so surprised by that, that it was such an intimate moment in a car. But anyway, yeah, cut to years later, and my father's dying of cancer at home. And... Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Brian likes this passage. Um, uh, he just said his last words. During that last long dark night, Mum came into the room. 
She'd been sleeping somewhere else in the house so as not to disturb Dad. I think she'd been in some kind of denial the last few days, pottering about doing her things. Now, being the sort of people they were, the most affection they ever showed would be a brisk peck on the cheek. But now, Mum ignored us all, got into Dad's bed, and held him tight, her arms wrapped around him. The penny had dropped, her dermot was dying, and she was there to comfort him. It made me cry. Oh, God, Brian, you made me read that. You made me cry. <laughs> cry again. Can you see that moment right now? I can, yeah. But can I, can I tell you one more story about Dad? Oh, you know... He was a, a fine-looking man, your father. He, he looked like a film star. Michael obviously took after him. <laughs> Being a parent myself, you know, teaching your kids about the facts of life, I don't think I did anything at all. Ask your mother. Uh, but my parents had two attempts at this, one, both entirely typical. One was, um, I remember about the age of, you know, this is literary festival, uh, I think at the age of 12 or something like that, I was reading Peyton Place, a very, very, um, you know, d distinguished novel. <laughs> and, 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 and it has a racy bit about page 67, which I remember. <laughs> And I used to have it un <laughs> under my mattress um, <laughs> at home. And, uh, and uh, I, good night, Dad, I went off to bed, pulled up Peyton Place to go to page 67. <laughs> and it wasn't Peyton Place. My mother had taken, had found it. <laughs> and instead there was, you know, uh, the New Zealand Department of Health Guide to Adolescence. <laughs> 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 You, your body or something. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> that was mum's attempt. Um, dad's, dad's was different. Um, and, and, and again, it goes to, you know, good night, Dad. And then I was, I was, I'd had four years at boarding prep school, and I was off to big prep school, a big um, college. And I, I just settled down, about to turn off the light, and, and was knock on the door, and it was Dad. And Dad never came up to our rooms and said goodnight, but there he was. And he, he came in the room like this, and, and uh, you know, he was obviously mortified, and, and I think Mum had sent him up there. And he, and he said, um, all right, old chap? And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, Dad. And he said, now look, um, <clears throat> off to big school tomorrow. I said, yep, yep, that's right, Dad. Um, he said, um, right, well, here's the thing. <laughs> Did your old headmaster ever talk to you about... Did he ever say anything about other boys? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... I think I know what he's talking about. I said, yeah, yes, Dad, he did. He said, oh, good, good, all right, uh, all right, that's fine. All right, good night, old chap. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it that. Yeah, I think we all had that, didn't we? <laughs> didn't we all of, of, of uh, our generation? Um, you weren't christened Sam, you were christened Nigel. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Fancy being called Nigel. <laughs> anyway, you were. Mm. And you had a great friend in, in your school, Nigel Nutt. The pair of you were Nigels. It's hard to know which is worse, Nigel Nutt or Nigel Neal, but Nigel Nutt probably took the cake. So the pair of you talked about being Nigels? Yeah, I mean, no one likes to be a Nigel. 
unless you're Nigel Farage. <laughs> and um, we decided at the age of 11, we'd, we were sick of it, and we were going to call each other, you know, we like reading Westerns, and people, people tended to be called Sam or Bill in Westerns. And I took Sam and he took Bill. It was the best decision I ever made. So he, so he got first pick. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, it, as it turned out, it was, it was a very prescient decision because you really can't be an actor called Nigel Neal and take it, take it seriously. It just isn't going to fly. So... <clears throat> I found this interesting in here too, because it's, it's very revealing. So you talk about your identity. So that's my identity. I embraced it many years ago, and it's very dear to me. At the same time, and here you would need a psychologist to sort this one out, there are, if I'm honest, two selves in me. My exterior is unquestionably Sam the New Zealander. You might even recognize him. But inside, somewhere very deep, there lives a small, shy boy who sounds quite different. And his name is not Sam, it is Nigel. And every time my siblings use that name, that little boy squirms. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think that's... It's totally understandable with a name like that. Yeah. <laughs> but what I do, say to you is, do you think, do you think Nigel, now, who is pretty insecure, mm. not sure of himself, mm. do you think that now he's Sir Nigel, he feels better? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to brutalise me on this. I, I did, you know, I, I was, uh, look, I, as an old lefty, I'm very dubious about, about honorifics. But um, last year, when I got the cancer thing, all those scruples that I had all those years, they just flew out the window. I thought, you know, I I'm, I'm going to die soon. Because they'd offered me the knighthood like 10 years ago. And I went, oh, bugger it. I'm going to write to government house and say, I'll take it. I've got cancer, fuck it, I'm going to be so, so sad. <laughs> Lousy excuse. <laughs> yep. New Zealand. Sleeping Dogs. First movie you got to make. Good friend of ours, Roger Donaldson, directed you in it. How did you come about being selected to do it? Look, again, I really have no idea, but I got an aerogram, of all things, from Hong Kong, from Roger, saying, we'd like you to, to be in this movie. I had, you know, I was making documentary films at the time. I wasn't an actor. But I had been in a little film that had been shown on television, playing a priest, of all things. And um, they'd seen that and thought, I don't know, that, that could be our, our boy. So I, I found myself about six weeks later in Auckland as the lead in a, in a proper feature film. And it was the first feature film that had been made in almost 20 years in New Zealand. No one knew anything about making feature films. And um, we had all sorts of people <laughs> doing special effects who'd never done special effects before. <laughs> And stunts who'd never been stuntmen before. It was just, it was completely flying by your pants. And they had a lead actor, and that was me, who'd never been in a feature film before. <laughs> but anyway, we made it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it certainly, you know, trod new ground. And that was the film that brought me to Australia. I went, I was, you know, was, got accepted into film festivals here, and I went to Melbourne. They had a press conference in Melbourne, and I thought, this is amazing, a press conference for me. Well, one journalist turned up, and he'd, <laughs> and he'd made a mistake. <laughs> and he was a sports journalist, and uh, 
So we commiserated about his mistake and, and my lack of um, press interest, and we just got half cut at the bar. But, <laughs> but that took me to Sydney, and it was it, that, that train trip to Sydney when I lifted the blind and I saw what a beautiful, beautiful country this was. And then I came to Sydney and I stayed with some friends and I fell in love with Sydney. And I got an audition then. Someone found out that I was in town and I got an audition with Gillian Armstrong and Margaret Fink. And they cast me in a film called My Brilliant Career. So that changed everything. I, I went home and I, I, I resigned my job at the National Film Unit. And I came to Australia and I never looked back, and, and, and that completely changed my life. And so I, here I am in Australia, I absolutely love this country, and I feel immense gratitude towards it. It's been really good to me. Um, yeah, so, so, so Roger Donaldson had a huge effect on where you are today. Yes, and then subsequently, Gillian Armstrong. And, it, it's, yeah. it's interesting how that, how that works, because Roger Donaldson is a great friend of both of us. Um, and he had not only a terrific bearing on Sam's career, but he had a terrific bearing on my own, because he rang me at once and he said, uh, I'd met him at a barbecue, and he rang me, and he said, I've got this movie, he said, I think you'll like it. It's called Cocktail. <laughs> and so I read it, and it was quite dark. It was taken from a book called Cocktail, which was about celebrityhood. It was really quite a dark book. Anyway, so Roger said, I'd like you to play this character in it. And I read it and I went, yeah, I'd, li I'd like to play that character. And he's a cunning bastard, isn't he? he so he says, uh, then he rings me and he says, look, um, I want you to do it, but um, Disney, who are making the movie, um, you know, they want you to audition. And I said, I'm not going to audition. I said, you've, you've, you've seen the different movies I've done. I'd done a few by then, Break and Rant, a few other things. I said, you know, I'm not going to audition. He said, and then he rings me back and he says, now look, you don't have to audition. He said, just fly over to LA and meet the studio. I went, yeah, all right. So, I fly to LA and he meets me at the airport and he said, we're going to New York. And I went, but I thought we were going to see the studio and we're going to, he said, no, we're going to New York because we're going to meet, you're going to meet Tom. And I, Tom Cruise, and I went, yeah, all right, I'm just meeting him, right? He said, yeah, yeah, you're just meeting him. So we get there that afternoon and he, we go in and there's Tom and he goes, right, now, look, um, I just want you to, do some stuff opposite Tom. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a camera there. <laughs> and I go, I'm not auditioning. <laughs> and he said, look, look, we'll, 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 we'll just read from the script, will you? <laughs> and so I go, okay. So Tom's there and I'm reading and I'm reading down like this and giving it nothing. <laughs> anyway, I go back to the Plaza Hotel in New York where I'm staying that night and he rings me and he goes, mate, look, can you learn it and come in tomorrow and do an audition with Tom? <laughs> I said, it's a bit hard. I'm on a plane early tomorrow morning back to Sydney. He said, look, the thing is you won't get the part on that reading. I said, all right, I don't get the part. I'm not auditioning. So I got the plane, I go back to Sydney. <clears throat> so I'm in, at the Tokyo Film Festival a couple of weeks later and I think, oh, I wonder what happened to that movie. I wonder who got that. So I ring my agent <clears throat> and he said, he said, look, if you'd have rung me a week ago, I'd have said you weren't going to do it. He said, but I think you're going to be made an offer tomorrow on it. And I said, okay. And the next day, an offer comes in for me to do it. So I get in touch with Roger and I say, how's this all work? You want me, but I'm not going to get it on that thing. He said, he said, look, there was a few other people they were interested in and they, they auditioned them. They weren't sure about it. He, he said, I'd never shown them your tape. He said, so I said, all right, well, this is the bloke I'd like. And he said, the thing was, 
is the thing was, we left the tape, the camera was still running after you'd finished doing the reading. And they went, oh, that's the bloke we want. <laughs> it was how I was behaving or something. And so I ended up doing it. And that Rogers, Rogers, Rogers wanting me to do that was a, a, a great change for my career too. So he, had, he has a very important part to play in our lives, doesn't he? Yeah, we love Roger. We like Roger. Mm. Yeah. You know, one of the things you just talked about was, you know, doing Sleeping Dogs. No one was making movies. Let's talk about those early days, about... We were, you know, this is, this is 1977, 78, mm. around there. We were young blokes. No one was making movies, were they? No, certainly not in New Zealand, but they were starting to make them in Australia. Well, Peter had made Picnic at Hanging Rock, but we're yeah. still, it was still like, it was still like, this was a new game in town. Yeah. To actually be making movies that were Australian or New Zealand, where we weren't having to be English or American, where we could actually present yeah. ourselves and how we had been shaped by this place and your place yeah. and present that on screen yeah, was the, about the, the most exciting thing you could think of. And before I got here, I saw Newsfront yep. and I saw the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And then you and I just happened to be lucky enough to be in this new wave of Australian cinema. Yeah. And I almost did break a Morant. Yeah, yeah. But I was stuck in the Sullivans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With Kitty Sullivan. Yeah. And they wouldn't let me go, so... Uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, there's a lot of those crossovers, isn't there? But, uh, but the, the thing at that time was David Williamson was writing plays that were Australian plays. There was a play written by... called How Does Your Garden Grow, set in a prison that I saw at Nimrod. And they... I remember looking at that play and going, I can play those guys. It was exciting. You didn't go to the theatre and just see an American play or an English play. You actually saw something that was to do with the place you came from. I mean, it went straight to our heads. I mean, my God, we get on a plane, and we'd never been on planes before, and we get on a plane and go to Adelaide. <laughs> my God, when we got off that plane, we were like, we're the boys. <laughs> they were exciting times, weren't they? They were fun times too. Yeah. I wouldn't have liked to have been the first assistant who had to get us every morning to go to work because we'd, at 6am because we'd usually just got home at 5am from drinking uh, to the knock on the door at 6 to say, come on, you've got to go to work. But, you know, you can do that when you're 30. They were exciting times. Um, you got a phone call one day after my brilliant career came out, it was from James Mason. Yeah. That's a pretty incredible phone call. What happened? Well, ja, ja, I, well it's completely <laughs> mysterious to me to this day, but James was um, married to a very nice Australian woman called Clarissa Kay, who was an actor and a dancer, and um, they'd met on a film here in the early 70s, and um, I think they took a, an interest in what was going on at home and they saw my brilliant career. So I was, in, I was um, doing a thing called Lucinda Brayford at, in Melbourne with our friend Wendy Hughes. And I got a, a phone call from, you know, a, an, an assistant director came over and said, there's a, there's a phone call for you. In those days, we didn't have mobile phones or anything. And someone knew to call me at the studios. It's really strange. I picked it up. And he, and he said, hello, um, my name is James Mason. And I thought, is it the, the James Mason? <laughs> I don't, or am I being, you know, dudded or something? Anyway, he said, we think you're terrific. I'm sending you an air ticket. Come to Switzerland, stay with us for a week, and then I'm sending you on to England. And there's a film you should audition to, and I've got an agent for you. And I went... Well, you know, I'm, I'm no fool. I may look like a fool, but I said, thank you very much. And, and you know, within a week, I was in Switzerland having great dinner with, with, um, with, with James and his wife. 
And I just spoke before about that. There was a, there was a, it wasn't just a dinner that changed my life, that I was with the great James Mason, but he poured a bottle of Burgundy that night, and I'd never drunk anything other than sort of goonie bags and <laughs> <laughs> prior to that, and, and it, I'd, this was quite astonishing, and I got really... I said, what is this that you're pouring, James? He said, this is Burgundy, my boy. Don't forget it. And I never did. And I got interested in what Burgundy was. I started to drink a lot of Burgundy. I could afford it. I was living in London. And I, I, you know, I was getting a decent paycheck for things. And there was a great shop down the road that sold Burgundy. I'd go in there and buy more. And I got really interested in what the grape was. The grape was called Pinot Noir. And then 10 years later, I was able to plant my first vineyard in New Zealand. And um, so that, uh, and, and it's now four vineyards and I make a wine called Two Pads. Go on, plug it, plug it. Yeah. <laughs> go on, say it three times, go on. Since Brian insists. It's called Two Bags, or, or it's organic wine, and I have four vineyards, and that's my other life, you know. That's the, that's the other thing that I do. But, um, so that was a pivotal time. It not only took me to, to England and, a, and, a, and an international career, but also sparked my interest in wine, in, in particular Pinot Noir. Okay, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's get down to what they all want to hear about out there. <laughs> Women. You know, the women that you've, you know, that you've, you know. I don't know what you you're know, talking about. The ones you've, you know, you've worked with. <laughs> <laughs> and you've worked with a lot. Yeah. Of highly, incredibly well-known. Yeah. Could you, like, pick three of the women, just tell us the, the difference. Once again, it's about, you know, working with people. Three different actresses and the way they approach... And, your, and the relationship you had with them in, as an actor? Yeah, and look, it, I, I don't have... I actually list a lot of the women that I, that I work with in, my, and <clears throat> in, in the book, and it's a very, very long list indeed, and I feel extremely privileged to, to work with all of those women. And, and I actually think that women are better actors. Actually, women are better at most things than men. You know that this audience will be 95% women. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Well, that just proves my point, Brian. <laughs> women have good taste. <laughs> and they're Brian Brown fans. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have worked with so many, so many great women. But, um, Meryl. Yeah, Meryl's great. I do, uh, um, you know, that's self-evident. I think she's got 12 Oscars now. I don't have to talk her up. No, but like, you know, just, you know, everybody does approach differently, you yeah. know? Um, and it's interesting for our audience don't get behind the, the, yeah. the, the craft of, that we get involved in there. Um, so, some are incredibly nervous, some are not. Well, she was, she was interesting. Uh, I, I, I just, we were about to, we were shooting in France, and I, I asked her about this, because I, I, we were just about to do the scene, and she went over and touched the wall. I said, tell me about what that is, Marilyn. She said, I just want to feel that I'm present in this room. I thought that was a really good observation. Um, but yeah, she, we did a film called Plenty, written by David Hare. I was terrified of her at that point. Um, but by the time we got round to playing the Chamberlains in, um, in Fred Skepsis' film Evil Angels, we were very, very close friends. And, um, and she has an interesting way of approaching things because if you're against her in the story, she doesn't want anything to do with you on the set. Now, in... in the real story of the Chamberlains was that all of Australia were against... Uh, uh, it was just she and Michael, 
against the world. And um, so Meryl didn't really talk to anybody else except for me on the set. So all sorts of friends of ours came, came down, you know, to sit on the jury or something just to watch Meryl work for a couple of days. And, um, and um, I would have to say to them, look, it's not personal. It's just that she, she, she only speaks to me because I'm her, you know, I'm, I'm Lindy's only friend. French actresses you've worked with. Different approach, different style. I, I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember this, but there was, you know, about the era of Brigitte Bardot and so on. There was a fabulous act, act, actress called Stéphane Audran, who would be the lead in many of Claude Chabrol's films. I was lucky enough to work with Claude Chabrol once, and <laughs> it was the most remarkable thing. You'd see this funny, tottery old lady would come in. And she'd go into makeup, the door would be closed, and you know, an hour later, this movie star would come out. <laughs> Just the some glamorous, you know. And Jeanne Moreau, the same thing, you know. Jeanne is not a classically beautiful woman, but um, you cannot take your eyes off her. I couldn't take my eyes off her. She, she, and she was so lang languid, you know. Or some, uh, what a wonderful day this is. And, and yet, um, <laughs> fantastic, we were, we were working out in Alice Springs, and Jan has a sister who's English. And uh, Jeanne, uh, were, her parents, one parent was English and the other parent was French, and as children they were separated. And Jeanne grew up to be this incredible, you know, you know so glamorous. And, and her sister, to whom she was very close, was the tweediest, clipped, most English, English. <laughs> and to, to see this contrast, and you know, obviously, you know, nothing to do with nature. It's, it's absolutely to do with nurture. Those French women, then, hello, darling, how are you? <laughs> and, uh, I've never seen anything like it. It was fantastic. You know. Um... I just worked with a, a, an American actor called Dermot Mulroney, and, and he, he'd worked with you about 30 years ago. And he said, he was telling me, he said, I was on the set when, when Sam got the phone call with the offer to do Jurassic. Um, right. What was that phone call like? Yeah, I'd been to see Stephen. Stephen had seen me in um, uh, Dead, Dead Calm. So he thought mistakenly I was sort of an action guy, possibly. <laughs> and I went to see him at his house, and uh, I was very interested in his art and so on. We had a chat about it. And, uh, and you know, it's Steven Spielberg. I thought nothing would come of this. And then I did get a phone call. And, um, and as soon as I finished the job with Dermot, I was in Hawaii. Yeah. How many have there been now? I think there have been six. I, I've been, I was in three of, three of them. Right, very yeah. good. Um, <laughs> what, what are you laughing at? <laughs> We're talking about beautiful women. We had, we had one of our own um, who was very beautiful and could hold a, could hold a scream like, like anyone from France or America or England. Wendy Hughes, who was the most beautiful actress we had here who died far too early, 15 years ago or more. But we, um, we got the opportunity, uh, a bunch of us, uh, somewhere around 1980, to go on a trip to Sorrento in Italy. You want to talk about how the hell did we get that trip? Yeah, with the Italians, God bless them, <clears throat> um, were unwise enough to ask 29 Australians and one New Zealander to a film festival in Sorrento. So we ended up there, and that's where I met Brian. And um, I think <laughs> it, 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 you were drunk at the time, and so was I. <laughs> We were drunk all the time. Yeah. The uh, Italian journalists loved us. 
Yeah, and we, and we all went on stage at the end. They had a prize giving because they were honoring Australia this year. They showed some Australian films. And there were 30 of us, and we all got a prize. And, uh, and I, I went on, and I got a prize for The Light Horseman, which had been made 20 years before I was born, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and this was all televised live on, uh, you know, on, on the number one from, TV channel from in the Italy. Na Naples Opera House, if I remember. Na Naples Opera House, yeah. 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 But of course, uh, the, the thing that I remember about them most, like, look, we'd come back, we'd, they, they'd feed us at lunchtime in some beautiful restaurant, we'd have dinner a, 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 in the evening at some restaurant, and of course, all the journalists were there to, to talk about us. You know, they wanted to know this new form of, of cinema that was hitting them, they wanted to know the people involved in it. So we couldn't get rid of the journos, they'd be around us all the time, they'd hang around at night and whatever. Uh, they loved being around us. And, and I remember we came back from the Naples Opera House, to the, to the hotel to have a, to have a drink. Um, and the journalists were with us. And I remember one of the journalists coming up to me and saying, my parents have just rung, because they were watching the event on the, uh, at, the, at the opera house, and they said, who dresses the Australians? <laughs> I remember um, um, Poor old Barry Humphreys, who's been a bit cancelled lately, but I'll, cancel, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add fuel to that fire. <laughs> uh, love Barry, by the way. Um, but um, <laughs> we, were, we were going to that uh, event in Naples, and um, it was raining. It was, it was pouring with rain, and we had to run about 20 yards through the pouring rain uh, and jump on these buses. And we all got soaked in the in interim. Barry got on, soaking wet, hair down like this, and he yelled, fucking spag bastards! <laughs> what the hell? Uh, yeah, I remember that, I remember that. I don't know how it happened, how 30 of us got invited to Italy uh, to drink and eat our way for 10 days. How, who paid for that? Yes. You did! <laughs> Sam, I think we might um, get a few questions from the audience. Yeah. Are you, you fine with that? Yeah, have you got your glasses? Yeah, I got my glasses. Luckily, they're not yelling them out from out there. This is from Victoria. Jurassic Park was a special part of my childhood, thanks to you. What films or books were a special part of yours? Oh, my childhood. Well, I, I grew up um, reading, I suppose, Arthur Ransom. Uh, you Sorry? Know, so, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, C.S. Lewis, the usual uh, children's authors. And I loved, I loved books when I, was, when I was growing up. And, and um, because I was a very shy, timid boy, and... Uh, so I used to bury myself, and I had no aptitude for sport at all. So boarding school was pretty rough in its way, and um, I liked to retreat and be in what they, what they laughingly called the library and re read a lot of books. Um, tell us about your chickens. About my chickens? Yeah. This is from Anonymous. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> You're a funny bastard. Tell us about your chickens. <laughs> well, um, uh, I love um, uh, I love all all animals really. I think I, I, that comes from my grandmother, and I wrote it, my Welsh grandmother, and I, I wrote, wrote a whole chapter about her and anim animals, and that came through my parents to me. And I've on, on my my farm, the main vineyard, I've got sheep and cattle. Uh, a couple of pigs I talked about, I've got ducks, um, and just behind the house I've got a chook run and, you know, I let them out every morning and they pretty much run the place. <laughs> I, I like rescuing animals, and um, uh, about three years ago I rescued those hideous battery farms that they have for chickens. And we're, we, um, this place was going bung and you could get free chickens. So I rescued 12 chickens. And 
I, I remember being there on that day and opening the box. And there were these half-bald poor things, um, chickens in there, sort of half-bald, half-bred feathers. And you realized, looking at them, that they'd never seen the sky before, and they looked up, they were completely startled like this. And, you know, like, where the hell, <laughs> what is this? And then we got them out of the thing, and they'd never actually walked on the ground before, and they're just sort of walking gingerly like this and looking up at the sky. It was a really touching, sad thing to see. Within a week, most of the feathers were back and they were in charge. You know, <laughs> they were running me. <laughs> and and um, they're the best layers, actually. They just never stop. But I think the question relates to, I give some of them names, you know, and um, my rooster is called Michael Fassbender. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a cock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a friend, he's a friend. <laughs> I don't get this one. How did you end up a Swedish tradition? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, well, actually, um, I only worked with James Mason once. We, we, we did a, uh, a film adaptation, not a very good one, of, of Ivanhoe, classic, um, uh, was it Walter Scott or something? Anyway, classic novel. And there was an American producer who would make one classic. There was very little happening in England at the time in the early 80s. And he'd come across every summer and make a classic film for CBS. And um, it's entirely forgettable. I play the baddie, Sir Brian Bois de Gilbert. And Anthony Andrews played Ivanhoe. And um, in the end, I fall on my sword. It was a big battle. And... Um, and I die for love. Anyway, um, for some reason, the Swedes took to it. And it has become, even the Swedes don't understand it, but they, they, it's become a New Year's Day tradition. And at 3 p.m., all of Sweden sits down <laughs> and eats pizza and watches this terrible film of... Uh, uh, and every year I get several thousand letters from, from Sweden, from, from fans of Brian Bois de Gilbert saying, I hope Brian, I hope Brian wins this year. <laughs> uh, someone wants a Peaky Blinders anecdote. Got any? Um, yeah, it was, um, I, I do really... Um, I, you know, that, that was a great thing to do, not least because I love playing bad guys, because that was about the richest bad guy I've ever had to play. <laughs> he had absolutely no redeeming features whatsoever. Um, and um, if you haven't seen it, I'm in the first two seasons. And I play a guy from Northern Ireland. Uh, I'd never done a Northern Irish accent. Indeed, when I was growing up, I didn't have a Northern Irish accent. I had sort of British accent of some kind. Um, and I was very, very scared at the idea of... Um, but it turned out to be the richest voice you could work with. And I got a great prompt from a New Zealand actor who's very good at accents. And he, he, said, he said, Sam, when you're doing a Northern Irish accent, you've got to remember that it can be very, very tender and very, very harsh. <laughs> I thought, that's the best note I've ever had for an accent. And so to, to work with that rich voice and to play with this wonderful, rich, perverse character was one of the great highlights of my career, I think. Which of Brian's roles would you most like to have done yourself? And, and, and this is from Rachel, but it can't be the Rachel that I know. <laughs> Shall we skip that one? 
Let's go on to... I, 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 I do want to mention one film. that We've, we've made so many films together. We have. Um, the Good Wife. Yep, that was the first one we did together. And you're married to Rachel. Yeah. And I cuckolded you in that. Do, do you remember? Yeah, you do. You get off with her. Yeah. Well, the character gets off with the character. Yeah. And she never gets over him. The characters have strange taste. <laughs> we might end on this one, Sam. My 11-year-old would like to know, what's your favourite dinosaur? I'm often asked this. <laughs> I suppose it's got to be the T-Rex, doesn't it? The what? The T-Rex. You know what a T-Rex is? Yeah, it's a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, T-Rex has got lots of character and it's got funny little arms and, you know, you're sort of scared of it but quite laughable at the same time. A bit like you, Brian. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think um, we'll finish there. Uh, we've had a bit of a run through Sam's wonderful life. Um, he will be signing books afterwards. Um, thank you all for coming. Sam Neill. Brian Brown. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.